Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Thanks for being here to worship together with us. Fabulous yesterday to see the turnout for the great giveaway. I want to just take a moment and thank all of our volunteers. There were so many that were here that participated all throughout the week, getting the tables set up, getting the room set up. It was the first year that we did it this early. It was also the first year that we decided to do it all uh, indoors, and it turned out to work uh, very nicely. And so thank you to Edie. Thank you to the team of volunteers who spent countless hours here. Uh, I just appreciate them. I want to give them a round of applause. Wonderful ministry uh, to the community and and wonderful to see uh, our prayer team here. Uh, Neil and Lois had recruited a team of prayer warriors to be praying with uh, folks who came. And uh, when I left yesterday morning, there were people praying back here. So just a wonderful, wonderful time uh, to be together with our community yesterday. Well, how are we doing with our memory verse? Some accountability this morning. Are we ready to do it without the slide? Some are ready. Okay, Uh, let's try it. I'm going to hide. I'm going to hide my bookmark. Okay, so flip your bookmarks over. We'll put the slide away and we'll try it without the slide. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Good. I think we're doing good. We have one more week still, and I heard a lot, and I still heard some King James versions out there. And and like I said, that's okay. That's all right. Whatever version you memorize in, that's okay. We're going to have the ESV up here, but whichever one uh, you decide to memorize in, that's fine. And we've been studying the book of John in light of the reason for why it was written. And John's one of the Gospels where it's very clear in his book why he wrote. He reminds us in chapter 20 why he is writing his book. And in this section, in John chapter 7 to 10, we've been answering the question of really broadly, who is Jesus? And just to give you an idea of where we're at here, this is our final message in John chapter 8. So We started John chapter 8 back in June. Uh, actually on the 23rd of June. So we've been in John chapter 8 for almost two months. And it's a wonderful chapter. It's a, it's a fabulous chapter. I'm glad to be concluding it with you here today. But this is our 34th message in the book of John. And it really has been a, a wonderful exposition as we've been working through uh, section by section, portion through portion. I want to make some observations from this chapter because really I think in all of John, John chapter 8 is a very unique chapter. It's woven together very, very beautifully. And you can see some some wonderful contrast throughout the chapter. It starts at the beginning of the chapter with accusations that are made against a woman who's been caught in adultery. Remember John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. And, And these men come to Jesus and they're attempting to discredit his ministry. And Jesus says to them, let him without stone, or let, let him without sin cast the first stone. And when he looks up and he looks around, what does he say to the woman? Who condemns you? Who condemns you? And so again, as we work through the chapter, it's, it's woven together beautifully. Later in the chapter, Jesus is continuing to face these frontal assaults from the religious leaders who had gathered around him. And the religious leaders, he says to them, he says, who can convict me of sin? 
And so at the beginning of the chapter, we're confronted with the potential of stoning. And in between the verses, we're seeing these verbal assaults being thrown like stones at Jesus, one after another after another being cast at Jesus. And now at the end of John chapter 8, what will we find today? People will literally pick up stones. They'll literally pick up stones to murder Jesus. Beginning of John chapter 8, many had believed. And throughout John 8, as we've been studying, we've come to find that their belief, most of them, their belief was not genuine. End of John 8, their belief has given way to animosity leading to violence. Their persistent questions and accusations have given Jesus opportunity to define clearly what a disciple looks like. And Jesus has taken full advantage of that opportunity in this chapter, clearly defining that one of the hallmark characteristics of a disciple of Jesus is that they abide in his word. And that theme of word is woven throughout this chapter. At the beginning, it's the words of the accusers. And then Jesus uses his words to cast a verdict. About midway through the chapter, Jesus uses words to testify that he's the light of the world. And he gives a defense of his deity. Then he describes and he identifies that the mark of a true disciple is one who abides in his word. Further identifying that the true um, father of those who had gathered with murderous intentions was Satan. Only to conclude in our text today the powerful truth that he who keeps his word will never taste death. The theme of word is woven all throughout this chapter of John. One final observation regarding this chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, the religious leaders attempt to make a public spectacle of Jesus. Jesus isn't looking for this attention. You remember he's teaching and these religious leaders, they bring this woman and they thrust her before him in an attempt to make a public spectacle of his ministry. That's at the beginning of John chapter 8. At the end of John chapter 8, what does Jesus do? He hides himself from them. The beginning, they're attempting to make a spectacle. The end, he's hiding himself from them, and it's continuing a pattern that we see throughout the book of John where Jesus reveals truth about himself, he reveals truth about the Father, and then he withdraws into obscurity. It's a beautiful chapter, friends. It's weaving some of John's most prominent themes uh, throughout the entire book. We see in this chapter hearing and seeing. We see light and darkness. We see testimony and judgment. We see love and hatred. We see great unity between the Father and His Son. And we see great division between the Son and the people that He came to save. So today we'll conclude our study of John chapter 8, and in our time together today, there's four questions that are in this section of Scripture, that are in this portion that we want to study together this morning. Four questions we want to unpack, and Jesus gives four answers to the questions that he's asked. Each of these questions holds importance to answering the deeper question that's being asked throughout this entire section of John. Who is Jesus? Jesus' answers to these questions will also uncover 
two of his most bold and shocking statements that we find perhaps in all of the Gospels. All as we further explore the question of who is Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking this morning at John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you bring us together here weekly to fellowship with one another, to edify one another, to build one another up through the power of your word. And now, Lord, as a body of Christ, together this morning, we surround your word. And we always gather and we always surround your word in anticipation that you are going to work. Father, we know that your spirit is alive within us, that the truth of that means that he's working to convict us, He's working to change our hearts, to change our attitudes, to change our minds, to mold us more and more into the image of your Son, the one we're so thankful for this morning. And so, Lord, as we gather around your word this morning, might you use it to help us grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John chapter 8, starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. All of the words from the first 48 verses, all of these persistent attacks that had just kept coming and coming and coming at the character of Jesus now turn ad hominem. The character of Jesus no longer at issue. Now they're attacking Jesus personally. The full thrust of their vitriol towards Jesus exposed in two indictments that come in the form of the first question in this text. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? First, friends, they call him a Samaritan. 
they accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan. And second, they accuse him of having a demon or being demon-possessed. Now, as a Samaritan, Jesus would have not had any fellowship with them. He wouldn't have been allowed to. And certainly he would not have shared in their heritage as being sons of Abraham. The best way that I can explain this relationship, it's a fun, it's a fun way. Maybe some of you remember growing up, I, I like Dr. Seuss. Maybe some of you like Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss was good. He, he had a book, it was called The Sneetches. Does anybody remember The Sneetches? Right? And what was the message? Some of you do. You remember the story. The message is that there were some of these creatures, they were called Sneetches, and some of them had stars on their belly. And there were other sneetches that did not have stars, the Samaritans, on their belly. And so they would go places together and the sneetches that had stars, the Jews, they would fellowship together and have great fellowship and they would look at the sneetches that didn't have stars and they would be ostracized, pushed outside. They weren't part of the fun, part of the fellowship. And so what did the Sneetches without stars do? Does anybody remember? They found a guy to do what? Put stars on, right? And so that's the best way I can define this relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus' belly, in their eyes, did not have a star on it. He was not one of true Jewish heritage. And if that were not enough, they turn Jesus' argument from the last portion of John 8 back on him. Remember what Jesus had just said last week. You are of your father, the devil. And they turn that back, on, back against him here. He's just finished exposing the true identity of their father. And now they accuse him of being possessed by one of his demons. Jesus' response in verse 49 is telling. First, I think it's interesting, he doesn't justify their accusation of his heritage. God would save Samaritans just as he would save Jews. So for Jesus to even justify that, he doesn't even do it. He doesn't justify it. He quickly counters, though, in verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Friends, Jesus was not on earth to glorify himself, but to see that the Father would be glorified through his life. And this is what would happen. Verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. Jesus is talking about God here, friends. God is seeking his own glory and he's going to seek it through the light and life of Jesus no one gets to judge God friends God is the judge and how he seeks his own glory and how he receives his own glory is utterly up to him now this fact leads to a bevy of confusion in our culture today and that's because we tend to judge God by our own feeble standards. People think, and you hear it often in, in many ways, and I'll share some quotes with you up here today, that a God that seeks His own glory cannot be good. People have said that. People have said the God who seeks His own glory is vain, can't be just, certainly isn't righteous or loving. There's a lot of confusion about this. 
Here's a quote from renowned atheist Richard Dawkins. Some of you may be familiar with his book, The God Delusion. Many of you may know the quote. It's pretty popular out there. Richard Dawkins says this, quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. Petty, unjust, unforgiven, a control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. End quote. That's what Richard Dawkins says about the God of the Old Testament. You know, before he came to space, some of you might know C.S. Lewis's story. C.S. Lewis was not always a believer. In fact, he was an atheist who came to faith later in life. And before C.S. Lewis came to faith, one of the things that he said about the God of the Old Testament was this, quote, God is like a vain woman fishing for compliments. End quote. C.S. Lewis, before salvation. Popular London economist Michael Prowse says, Worship is an aspect of religion, quote, Worship is an aspect of religion I've always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants, puffed up with pride, crave adulation and homage. But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all those people on their knees every Sunday? End quote. Friends, this is our culture. This is the world we live in. And this is the way that many people think about a God who is seeking His own glory. In verse 50, Jesus is confirming what we find to be true in the Old Testament. Our God is a jealous God who does seek His own glory. But the question is this, is it vanity? That's the question. Is it vanity? Look at Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11, if we need further proof. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. This is God speaking. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. For you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, and for my sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So here's a question Is this the most egregious case of divine arrogance and vanity that we have ever seen? Or. Is God's pursuit of his own glory further evidence of his great love for mankind? It's a great question. And it's one, friends, that our text answers. And so often the Bible works this way as we study and it motivates these questions in our minds. The answers are often right there in the same text that we're studying. And Jesus is going to talk about this. Take your eyes down to verse 51 with me. What does Jesus say about God's pursuit of His glory? What does it accomplish? Look at verse 51 of John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, look at this shocking claim, shocking, bold, magnificent claim, he will never see death. 
This may be one of the most bold and shocking claims that Jesus had made while he was on earth up to this point in his ministry. Never see death. See, friends, God's pursuit of his own glory involved the sending of Jesus who would bring light and life to the world, laying down his own perfect life for the sake of a sin-filled world, making possible the gift of eternal life for all who would believe. And Jesus had said earlier, he used the term abide in my word to mark this distinguishing characteristic of true disciples. Now he uses the word keep. It's the same idea though. Keep my word, abide in my word. Those who belong to God, believe and love Jesus, they abide in his word, and friends, they live forever. Those of us who are disciples of Jesus, this is a promise for us. Eternal life. Eternal life. And friends, this is what God's pursuit of His own glory accomplished for you and accomplished for me. And it's magnificently beautiful. And you know, the Jews could not comprehend this. The idea of eternal life was foreign to them. All they could do was go back to the flesh and blood. Look at what they say. Now we know you have a demon. They shout at him. Abraham died. The prophets died. Everyone dies. And you have the audacity to tell us that those who listen and keep your word will never taste death? Oh, friends, how blind and misguided they were because that's exactly what Jesus was saying to them. Those who abide and keep my word will never taste death. And Jesus had already distinguished himself as greater than Moses. He had already set himself up. We saw that in, the, in earlier chapters. And now he's clearly showing his preeminence over even Abraham. In questions 2 and 3, look down at verse 54 of your text. Questions 2 and 3 come up here in verses 54 to 56. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself... My glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would, be, that he would see my day. And when he saw it, he was glad. Questions 2 and 3 ask at the beginning of this portion of the text are pointed directly towards gaining an understanding of Jesus' identity. They were part of this greater line of questions that began all the way back at the beginning of the chapter. And we can trace them one by one, friends. They're all throughout this chapter. The questions at the beginning of John chapter 8, they're more seeking the true identity of Jesus. Really who he was. But as the chapter moves and as we get further and further into the book, the questions become more animus. They become attacks against Jesus' character. Look, in, in John chapter 8, verse 5, their first question, what do you say regarding the woman caught in adultery? Knowing that Jesus' ruling on this matter would reveal something about his character. John chapter 8, 19 was their next question. Remember, they asked him, where is your father? Knowing that the identity of one's father often reveals something about one's own identity. John chapter 8, 22. Will he kill himself? 
Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Knowing that the destination of an individual reveals something about the motivations of a person. John chapter 8, verse 25, they ask, who are you? Get these question after question after question just in one chapter. John chapter 8, verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham, never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you will say you will become free? Here they're testing the veracity of his teaching, the truthfulness of his words, hoping to expose Jesus as less than trustworthy. In John chapter 8, 48, aren't you a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Hoping to disqualify his heritage and discredit his authority. And now in verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham? Who do you make yourself out to be? Look at these questions just in one chapter, friends. What Jesus had to endure from these people. Still counting themselves as Abraham's sons, I guess physically they were probably justified to do so. We can assume that most, if not all, the men who had gathered to ask these questions had probably been circumcised. Certainly they were of Jewish heritage, as evidenced in their disdain for the Samaritan people in this passage. Most likely they were all experts in the law and the prophets. They talked about them. Physically, they they could really celebrate their Abrahamness. You know, hey, Abraham, we're of Abraham. They were really excited about that. Glorying in how much like Abraham they were. You know, it's interesting. um, Paul talks a little bit about this in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, I just want to read it quickly to you. Paul kind of glories in this for a moment. He says, Though I myself, starting in verse 4 of chapter 3, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now listen to this in verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteous under the law, blameless. Paul's kind of glorying in his physical qualifications, right? But what does he follow with in verse 7? This is where Paul's different than the Pharisees, right? He had come to know this. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For what? For the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. So here we have victory in Abraham. Fly, Abraham, fly on the road to victory. You know, like, really, like, I mean, they are, like, really proud about this. Abraham's our dad. Woo! Glory in Abraham. But friends, they would not gain Christ because they were not willing to count their heritage as loss. And that's why they would not gain Christ. They couldn't see him. They were blinded by their own pride. And by their own arrogance. And here's Jesus' chance. I mean, Jesus could really step up to the plate here. I mean, they're so proud in their Abrahamic heritage. Jesus could really just, I mean, if he wanted to bring the two-by-four, now's the chance. The Son of God standing in their midst. I mean, he could really glory and boast in himself right now. And just really throw it out there. But his response is different. He doesn't glory in himself. Remember at the beginning here, he's not out to make a spectacle of himself. He's not out for his own glory right here. 
The same God that that they thought they knew but truly had no knowledge of would be the God who would glorify the Son. And the fact that Jesus was expressing his intimate knowledge and relationship with the Father God here points directly to the truth and veracity of his teaching. Jesus is telling the truth because God is his Father. And remember last week we saw the comparison between the children of the devil and the children of God. Here's another one. Remember the children of the devil. The devil was a liar. He's calling them a liar here. Jesus is speaking truth. And all of his words should be considered faithful and true because his identity is faithful and true. Jesus is who he says he is, period. He's the Son of God. It's a revelation that at one point in our lives was as shocking to us as it was to those who had gathered in this crowd. Do you remember that, friends? Do you remember the moment of your salvation? Do you remember when that revelation was shocking to you? That Jesus was indeed the Son of God and you needed to submit your life to Him? Do you remember that moment in your life when you feel like a weight was lifted off your shoulders because of the freedom that you found in Jesus Christ? It was a shocking moment for many of us in this room, perhaps all of us. And this word from Christ was shocking to those who had gathered. Some would accept it as reality. Some would believe and receive eternal life as the gift of their belief, but others rejected this reality. And they live in unbelief and they receive the due penalty for their faithlessness. And friends, the same is true today as it was back then. Jesus doesn't ask us to do something that He Himself was not willing to do. Jesus says true disciples abide in His Word. True disciples keep His Word. And when He says that, He's not saying that because it's something that He Himself was not already doing. Look at what He says at the end of verse 55. Take your eyes down to the end of verse 55. And I keep His Word. Jesus perfectly keeps and fulfills the Word of God and He asks us to abide in and keep His Word. And then, friends, there's this curious but powerful line. And I'll be honest, this line caught me this week as I was looking at this text. I don't know if I ever quite read this verse this way in the context as I saw it this week. And and it got me asking questions. But let's just read the verse, and then I'll tell you the question it got me asking. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So what question do you think came to my mind? When did Abraham see that day? That's the question I began wrestling with. When when did Abraham see this day? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. It's in the front of your Bibles. (laughs) Genesis chapter 17, Old Testament. Probably one of the uh, most powerful passages in all of Genesis is this covenant that God makes with Abraham in chapter 17. It's an incredibly important chapter of the Bible because in Genesis 17, God is establishing an everlasting covenant with Abraham. One where he's promising Abraham land, seed, and blessing. And within the context of this covenant, so if you look at chapter 17, within the context of this covenant, God promises that a child 
is going to be born to Abraham. Look down at verse 15. God said to Abraham, by the way, at the beginning of chapter 17, he's who? Abram. And by the middle of John chapter of, sorry, John, John 17. We can only wish. That's in a few years. Genesis 17. Look at verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. How did Abraham see Jesus's day? How did Abraham rejoice? Friends, Abraham rejoiced because when Isaac was born, he witnessed the faithfulness of Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God, and he was glad. And through eyes of faith, he trusted in the promises of God, though never personally seeing Jesus physically, he believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's example of faith and belief should have stood as a testimony and as a witness to those who had gathered with Jesus in their midst. This should have been their greatest example. They were resting on it as their greatest example. But they were too focused on their physical circumstances. And their physical circumstances were blinding them to their spiritual reality. You can flip back to John chapter 8. Finally, we've reached their final question in this chapter. Verses 57 to 59. So the Jews said to him, here's their final question. You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am huge First bold, shocking statement of the text, you shall never see death. Second bold, shocking statement of this text, of maybe all of what Jesus said, maybe the most clearest statement of divinity that Jesus makes in His earthly ministry is right here. The preeminence, the preexistence of Christ, all wrapped up in John chapter 8, 58. Such a powerful statement. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus has no beginning, no end. Friends, He's fully God. And physically, we find His life on earth beginning and ending as it's laid out in Scriptures. But eternally, just as God, Jesus has always been, Together with the Father, part of the Godhead, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. People ask, did Jesus ever clearly confirm His identity of being God while He was on earth? Did He ever come out and say 
that he was God. And the resounding answer found in John chapter 8, 58 is yes. Yes. It's right here. And the proof that Jesus had clearly identified himself as God here to the people who were gathered is what they do in response to it. They are so angered. No one could have said anything more blasphemous in their midst than what Jesus just said. They are motivated to murder right there on the spot. To pick up stones and to see Jesus killed. The literal understanding of this phrase could be parsed this way. Before Abraham was, past tense, Jesus is, present tense. This isn't a surprise to us, friends. We have the advantage of all of John's Gospels in our hands and in our time together. We've already unpacked passages like this. John chapter 1, verse 2. From the very beginning of the Gospel, the writer's clear he was with God in the beginning. Speaking of the Word who is Jesus. So for those who had gathered here in John chapter 8, here He is, the great I Am, in all of His glory, standing in their presence, physically existing in their midst. Would they receive Him? Would they believe Him? The time of decision is upon them. And they pick up stones. And friends, it's a reminder that many will reject Jesus. Many. And many reject Him today. And, and friends, we alluded to this last week. Those who reject Him today, there's a, a new pattern. It's a disturbing pattern in our society that seems to be happening. But many who reject Him today like to reject Him on social media in a very public way. People who maybe have claimed to know Him for years. Popular authors. Just this week, uh, a man who has written many of the modern worship songs that people sing in churches today renounced his faith on social media in a gigantic post, much the same way as Joshua Harris did a few weeks ago. And friends, this is a trend. It's a disturbing trend. But I believe it's a reminder to us that we cannot put man on a pedestal where he does not belong. God must be on that pedestal. And I've said it to you before, but I'll say it for as long as I'm here with you. Please, please, please know I am a man like any other man in this room. And, and I've told you before and I'll tell you again, I will fail. I'm not perfect. Just yesterday, my wife caught me failing. I was sitting there mourning on the couch how my role has changed with the football program as I'm just a volunteer this year and I don't feel like I'm as involved and I was questioning my own uh, meaning in life and all these great philosophical things and she looked at me and she said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> she wasn't quite that harsh. She was very gentle with me. But I, I just want you to know that I have my moments where I wrestle. You know, where, where, where I'm sitting there, and, and, and I'll be honest, yesterday was a difficult day for me. 16 years I've coached high school football, full-time, all in. Stepping away this year as a volunteer has been a difficult adjustment for me, for my life. Usually on this Sunday, I wouldn't have a voice. <laughs> but I do. 
And you know, I have to find God's goodness in all that. I'm not perfect. And you know, no man is, no woman is, and we should not put people on a pedestal where they do not belong. And so the question for us as we seek to conclude our time together today is, how will we, how will we respond to those who reject Jesus? How will we respond? Well, how did Jesus respond? I love this. The text gives us an answer here. These people reject Him. They pick up stones to throw at Him and to see that He would be murdered right there on the spot. And did He pick a fight with them? Did He pick up stones and throw back? I could pick up bigger stones than you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, He could have demolished them. Honestly, right? Right there on the spot. He could have ended it for them. Did He challenge them to a game of Dodge Rocks? No, he didn't do any of that. What did he do? He hid himself from them. And then he loved them all the way to the cross. This is the behavior of a God who was in full pursuit of his own glory. Friends, Jesus lays down his life for those who picked up stones. Jesus lays down His life for our neighbors who hate Him today, but in God's divine plan might come to know Him in two to three years. We don't know. Jesus lays down His life for our bosses, for our co-workers, some of whom may be following after false religions, who maybe in three to five years Jesus uses some act of love that you have shown them, something that you have done in your life, and He uses that to draw them to Himself and to save them. Jesus lays down His life for our sons and our daughters, some of whom have walked away from the faith, but after a season of wondering, they come back like prodigals, transformed by the witness of the love they've been shown by a Christian brother or sister that Jesus placed in their pathway. And here's the reality, friends. We never know how Jesus might be using us today to draw someone closer to Himself. We never know. And we're called to live a life of love, a life of laying down our lives for the sake of others, And this church is not some kind of weird duty or obligation that we've been given, friends. This should be our joyful delight to lay down our lives for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Because of the great love that He's demonstrated towards us, we will never taste death. This is what God's pursuit of His own glory has produced. Our salvation. And friends, we should be incredibly thankful. A team's going to come this morning and they're going to lead us in kind of a modern hymn, one that fits the tone of this message so perfectly because it is indeed in Christ alone that we stand. Father God, it is because of the work of Your Son Jesus that we can stand today and we can stand with bold confidence because we've been loved with an everlasting love. Lord, a love that's undefinable, it's indescribable. In so many ways, 
Lord, through the most difficult seasons of our life, you carry us with this love. You hold us. We're so thankful, Lord, for the love that your son Jesus demonstrated for us. Lord, what that love accomplished for us. Lord, we're, we're thankful that you're a God that's jealous for your own glory because there is nothing and no one else that deserves any. You deserve it all. Father, that our lives would unmistakably be arrows that are pointing north, directing those that you bring into our pathways towards the power of your majesty. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.